My guest today on Mission Impact is Thomas Anderson. Thomas and I talk about how organizations can learn to see and listen, why more and more people are working with founders, and what foresight is and why it's important to organizations. Mission Impact is the podcast for progressive nonprofit leaders who want to build a better world without becoming a martyr to the cause. I'm Carol Hamilton, your podcast host and nonprofit strategic planning consultant. Welcome, Thomas. Welcome to Mission Impact. Thank you, Carol. It's nice to be here today talking with you. So I like to start each conversation with um, what drew you to the work that you do? What would you describe as your why? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I started this work just to basically help visionaries to, I used to say to change the world, but it's really to help visionaries to impact the world or to improve the condition of the world that we live in. And um, as you just said, you're you're a coach and consultant that really works with um, folks to uh, you know you focus in on vision development. Why why would you say that vision is so important for whether it's an organization, a team, an individual? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and I have to caveat it by telling you a little bit of my backstory of how I got into this work. Um, so I had every intention of graduating from undergrad and, you know, just going right into a nine to five corporate job, staying there, retiring. But the more and more I talked to people um, who were around me and the more opportunities that were coming my way, they were really related to, uh, you know, people would come to me with their ideas or they would come to me with um, you know, some type of creative something that they wanted to do that made everyone else, you know, who gave them feedback on it would say, okay, I don't, I don't know about this. You might be crazy. <laughs> Those kind of responses kept coming to them. And so when I, I was just open to, you know, just the fact that, okay, you want to do something new. At the time, you know, I graduated right after the dot-com bust. <laughs> and so I was, in a sense, uh, you know, either forced to go back to school or to try something new. And I was at the time trying something new. And so I saw, I say all that to say, I saw how it motivated. Vision has a very motivating, uh, it's a very motivating phenomenon within itself. Yeah, absolutely. And and I work a lot with folks in the nonprofit sector and it's usually, you know, someone um, has a vision of, of how the world might be better or how they could have impact or, how they could serve people or a gap that they that they perceive and and um, they step into that and so um, and and sometimes the vision is is very clear for the for the founder and not necessarily for everyone that they want to kind of pull along with them. Um, so you you recently did some research into vision development and then its realization. Can you tell me a little bit about that research and kind of what were the what were the questions that you were trying to answer? Yes, yes, I'd be happy to. And uh, you just brought up something that I thought about earlier. Uh, there's a trend going on, and I can I can break it down like this. And this is what my research has shown, just on a I guess cursory level, that more new businesses are popping up. 
and even more so since the pandemic has happened, um, the number of new business applications doubled between 2007 and 2022, and they actually spiked between 2020 and the end of 2021. Uh, they, le they have leveled back off to that you know, doubling. But when you couple that with the fact that corporate longevity has decreased from 67 years, uh, you know, companies used to last on average on the S&P 67 years in 1920 to 15 years in 2012, you have this trend that uh, businesses are getting younger and the chances of working with a founder are higher. And so I started to think, what does that say for vision or visionary leadership, vision and visionary leadership? And so what I started to do was to reconceptualize, you know, there's a call in the research from a couple of scholars to reconceptualize visionary leadership. And I started to think about that trend uh, of businesses actually getting younger. And I said, okay, you know, I need to jump in here. And so I started to ask two questions. The first one was, can an organization learn to see? And then the second is, if so, how do organizations practice seeing together. Now, I've been kind of, I, I've ha had a couple of discussions around my book topic, or I should call it a manuscript at this point, because we're still in the process of, of uh, you know, of the proposals and so forth and so on. But I'm even revising that question to look at uh, a topic that came up in one of the sessions, can an organization learn to hear? Or how do organizations learn to use the senses. And so what that looks like, you know, going back to my original question is how do organizations learn how to detect and anticipate the future in such a way that they can choose which future they want to pursue. And also on the same token, be nimble enough to make changes along the way. Can you say a little bit more about what you mean by an organization seeing or an organization hearing? Sure, sure. Um, so when it comes to seeing, basically, when we talk about vision, we all know that it's future oriented. And so a, a term for that is the preferred future. And so which future the organization prefers, but visioning itself starts with the ability to see. And you mentioned the founder earlier, and, and that really comes into play here because founders take a journey um, through what they conceive to be the preferred future. But there's a lot of information there um, that lies outside of the realm of visioning. It lies in the foresight realm, you know, future thinking, you know, just picking up on trends that are happening or doing some type of horizon scanning or thinking about scenarios that could play out. And so all of that comes into play when talking about how organizations learn to see together, not just you know, the founder learning to see, but everyone at some point being invited into the process uh, through their feedback or through a whole group collaborative session, uh, just in bringing all of that wisdom into one room and saying, okay, based on that, what do we want our company to be in the future? Yeah, and you talked about foresight also. Can you say a little bit about what you mean by that? Sure. So foresight, um, 
it's not really pie in the sky. Like, you know, <laughs> sometimes vision and foresight can be treated that way. But foresight is basically seeing or detecting what's coming up uh, in the next. Uh, so just to, I guess, make a juxtaposition between foresight and strategic foresight and strategic planning, right? Strategic planning looks, uh, and you're an expert at strategic planning, so I need to get this right. Strategic planning looks <laughs> in the near future, right? Up to maybe three or five years. Foresight looks beyond that. It can, it usually starts at five years, but can look up to 50 to 100 years. Not to say that people can predict the future, but you know, you're just picking up on all of these trends that are going on, you know, emerging trends, things that could turn into something later, we just don't know. But there are things that would impact or could possibly derail that perfect picture of the future that, you know, many organizations and the founders do hold. Yeah, it's so interesting when you're talking about kind of the near term and the longer term um, for nonprofits with, the, with there being so much, you know, oftentimes just way more to do than can possibly get done. The visions tend to be huge, even when the resources and the organization are, are really small. And so I find even getting organizations to um, think about that next three years or the next five years can be challenging um, for them to just take the time to kind of step back um, what are, what are some ways that uh, smaller organizations can kind of tap into what other people are doing around foresight so they don't have to kind of, you know, start from scratch when thinking about those trends? Hmm, that's a good question. Uh, I was talking to um, the president of a smaller organization. It wasn't a nonprofit, but I think the, the lesson for me in this was that uh, there are certain organizations that are mission driven or are are concerned with their team's well-being, and I think that's a good uh, a good point of commonality. But what she told me is that she gets together with her team monthly, and each team member gets a chance to be the CEO. And so in that meeting, um, she you know she either selects someone or they volunteer, and what the first task that they have is to tell in their own words what the vision is. And so that's a good way for the leader to not have to always take center stage in communicating it, but also for someone, you know, to come forth through someone else's voice and for the leader to also see where that person is and what they see and, you know, see the organization from their vantage point. Yeah, that's a great point. I often when I'm doing strategic planning with organizations and in that initial phase where, you know, I'm talking to everybody, one of the questions I often ask is, so what is the, you know, why does your organization exist? What's the purpose um, to get everyone to, to describe that mission? They're probably not going to be able to recite the mission statement, but do they kind of at core have a common understanding of what the purpose of the organization is and, and have that be a checkpoint um, in the process so that, you know, if they're if if it's like really all over the place, then that's something that the organization needs to deal with. Absolutely. So, yeah. So in in your research, uh, you were looking at um, how organizations can see, and now maybe how organizations can hear or or use the other sentences that we have. What were what were some of the findings that you that came out of um, the work that you did? Great question. 
so I, going through the process, I came up with 11 operating principles that were the focus for each chapter around organizational uh, vision development and realization. And so I, I talked a little bit about this earlier, but vision is more than, you know, what meets the eye. It's using your senses. It's, it's really detecting, you know, and, and uh, I came up with a lot of synonyms, uh, you know, that I placed in, in the book. Uh, but one phenomenon really stuck out to me was picking up on weak signals on the horizon. And these are signals that can often be missed, but they they can inform um, they can inform the direction of the vision, the what I call the iteration of the vision. Um, that brings me to a second concept where uh, I think Brenda Zimmerman, who was a consultant uh, and a, a futurist, and she worked in uh, chaos and complexity theory, she recommended good enough vision not necessarily wordsmithing it to the point of beyond recognition. She said, get a vision to the point where it's good enough uh, and then use it, test it. Uh, and, and over the course of its life cycle, it'll change. Yeah, so I love that. Two... Yeah. yeah, I love that idea of the good enough. Um, again, when I'm working with organizations, um, also trying to get them to, you know, what's a good enough strategic plan and to remind them that, yeah, you're not trying to predict the future. And um, these aren't, once it's done, it's also not a tablet that came from on high, right? It, it, it's something that you all created. And so when you need to, you can also update it. So just reminding people that, you know, there's flexibility even when you want to set some intentions and some direction, but um, yeah, what's good enough? Yeah, and it changes a wallflower vision into a working document. Absolutely. What were some of, some of the other findings that came out? Yeah, sure. Um, so there are two trends that in my opinion, are upending the traditional idea of visionary leadership and even vision development. And one of those we talked about just now is good enough vision or emergent visioning. The other is shared visioning. And in founder-led companies, I'm finding that shared visioning doesn't happen as much with employees at the start as, and I was surprised, you know, I, I did one quick uh, survey and the customers, so founders would actually go through the process of shared visioning with customers, you know, using design thinking, I know you're very familiar with that process, uh, more than they would with their employees once the company had grown. And I found that to be staggering. Well, yeah, I guess there is the focus there on going to the customer, but then if only a few people are involved in that conversation, then, you know, there's a big gap of the folks who are, uh, you know, in the day-to-day. -day. And yeah, for, for nonprofits, um, it's oftentimes, uh, you know, the, the, the founder, the CEO, and the board get involved in those conversations and staff get left out of it. And I really encourage groups to include, you know, as many people as, as are really, um, you know, practically possible to, to get involved in, the, in those strategic conversations because 
everyone has something to share and a perspective and that frontline, you know, actually, you know, implementing a program, actually making things happen is so important um, when you when you bring it back up to kind of that bigger, bigger picture vision. Sure, sure. And I think we're at a point and I think we are at a pivotal moment in, you know, just organizational life and considering, you know, visionary leadership and what it was contextualized for in the late 80s and 90s and where we were as, you know, a country at that time. Um, I think we're at a moment where the call, even on a generational level, uh, the call is for more people to be involved. And, you know, that's, I'm picking up on, you know, in corporations, nonprofits, uh, I, I work with faith-based nonprofits and, and I don't really see a difference. People are lacking time um, and the budget to do certain things. But there is something that I did come across in the literature. Uh, it was the book on visionary leadership by Bert Nannis. He actually, you know, when I was reading through it and also looking through the work of uh, Jim Kujas and Barry Posner, uh, the leadership challenge, and I had a conversation with uh, Jim Kujas also. And what I found was there's a backstory even to leaders coming up with a vision because they spend time talking to people, walking through the halls. And uh, Jim Kujas put it like this, leaders pick up on the vision that's latent in the hearts of the people. Mm. Those are the visions that really end up working uh, on a, when you start to generalize them for the entire uh, organization. Yeah, and that shared leadership is so important because, you know, in a, in a nonprofit organization, there isn't just one person making the decision, right? It's it's a it's always a group effort. Um, whether it's all volunteer, all, you know, everyone on the board needing to come together and and have a common and a shared shared vision, um, you know, between board and staff. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that always um, can kind of trip people up if they've come from uh, the for-profit side and especially with smaller organizations where they've kind of been in charge and been able to do things the way they wanted to. Whether that was best practice or not, they kind of had that ability. And then to step into the nonprofit sector, whether it's faith-based or others, um, where it's much more of a matrix, it's, you know, it's much more of a collective uh, so that uh, building that sense of shared leadership and um, and shared vision is is just so important. Um, what would you say are some of the challenges that leaders face when trying to kind of implement their vision and and implement and then build a, a shared collective vision? Sure. Yeah, there are two challenges that immediately come to mind. One is adoption, like having the vision to be adopted by a critical mass of uh, stakeholders, whether they be employees, uh, managers, uh, donors, um, just getting that vision adopted. And you know what, Carol, there is an example that I, I, I've been unpacking some of these examples and reading through them several times. <laughs> so with the March of Dimes, I actually read through uh, their history uh, and, and included it in the manuscript. And so over a period of more than 80 years, their vision and their mission has evolved uh, several times. And so on its website, it structures its history, for instance, around the four eras of an evolving vision. So the first iteration, what I call it, first iteration was curing polio. 
and the era was 1938 through 1955. When the, va the vaccine for polio became available in 55, they entered into another iteration and they called it uh, eradicating birth defects. You could also call it eradicating congenital disabilities. That ran until about the mid seventies. And then they entered another one, healthy pregnancies. And they were ensuring at this time that babies were strong and that moms were healthy. Um, and this ran into and kind of over, overlapped into the current uh, era that they're in, where they're tackling a crisis of prematurity, uh, premature births. And, and I think that, I, as far as I can tell, that's where their focus has uh, landed. And so, you know, we, we see things uh, like that with the, the vision becoming, uh, you know, moving in cycles instead of straight lines. Yeah, and, and each of those are certainly related and they've stayed kind of in the same realm, um, but the particular challenges or particular eras have been different. Um, yeah, I mean, oftentimes we'll ask um, organizations, for some organizations, you know, their mission is, is going to be perpetual, um, a healthcare institution, a hospital, um, but others, you know, would love to see putting themselves out of business, um, you know, a homeless shelter, a food bank. Um, if we didn't have needs for that, we'd be a better society, right? Like folks don't want to have to have those services available, um, but they see the need and so they build organizations to fit those needs. But yeah, so, so visions can, can um, iterate in, in a variety of different fashions. Yeah, and that's a great point. Um... It, it reminded me of the challenge that, you know, March of Dimes faced in that first, shifting from that first iteration to the second was a loss of sponsorship. And they had to find creative ways to tell their donors uh, who had pretty much devoted their, uh, themselves to the mission and, and that shared mission of eradicating polio, to tell them there are other problems that we need to address here. And to your point about, uh, you know, they, would have gone out of business had they not uh, iterated that, uh, you know. And, which could have, which would have been a, in in some ways a valid choice, right? Except that they were they looked around and there were other related things that they could that they had the infrastructure to tackle. Yeah, and Jim Hinslin, he did uh, he wrote a textbook on sociology. He put it this way: he said they could have gone out of business, but the bureaucracy of it made them continue. And so, mm, well, there's the always that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they said, okay, we have to come up with something else because there are jobs at stake. There, you know, this we've built so much goodwill in this in this brand, uh, and so they had to continue. I'm just I'm curious, kind of, what are the phases of iteration or other examples of that kind of vision iteration that you you see? There are pretty much uh, four phases. Uh, that first phase it, it deals with the foresight, uh, just really detecting what's going on in in and around an existing organization, or if it's a startup around the startup, you know, in, in the environment, the external environment. The second is the one we know, you know, just sitting down, writing the vision, uh, creating it or co-creating it. Um, and there's, uh, let's see, a micro phase in between there where the vision is emerging. Uh, it's just, you know, organically in different quote unquote containers um, it could be through values, uh, you know, it could be through culture, it could, it could emerge in, through several different containers. 
Um, the third phase is where stakeholders have a choice. And this choice is often taken for granted for founders. They can accept the vision or stakeholders can reject it. And we're seeing a lot of rejection of organizational vision right now in the great reshuffling, the great, uh, what is it? What, what is the other name for it? The great resignation. <laughs> there you go, the great resignation. I, I think I've gravitated to reshuffling more, but yeah, the great reshuffling, the great resignation, where people are voting with their feet. They're rejecting the vision by leaving. And if organizations don't get to the point, and if founders especially, and leaders don't get to the point where they accept, okay, people can accept the vision or they can reject it, then sometimes it becomes impossible. And, and if folks reject it, it's always impossible to get to this fourth phase where they, and I didn't come up with this term, but it's called vision integration. Uh, Dr. Jeffrey Coles, he came up with the term and did a lot of the research where people do two things. They uh, use the vision to make decisions in their everyday work life. And they use the uh, vision to guide their behaviors and their actions during the day. Yeah, and it's so interesting with the whole, you know, great reshuffle or, or whatnot. Um, I think it comes down to, for certainly in the nonprofit sector, what I've observed is often there's been a real gap between the vision that the organization has for the change that they want to make in the world, but then um, a real misalignment with how they actually act internally, how they treat each other, the culture that they've built, and I think it's especially acute when, when, when it is a mission-driven organization, and and people, you know, they, they essentially have higher standards for a group, and so they when they when they see that gap, they're much more likely, um, you know, to to walk away. And I I think uh, certainly in in the nonprofit sector, um, folks just have gotten to the point, and and then I think with uh, I don't know, it's you know pandemic you you reminded that we're that our all of our time is finite that uh, things become more urgent than they might have been you might have put up with it in the past where folks just aren't willing to as much uh now mm -hmm. yeah yeah that that's a great point um while you were sharing that i thought about when you, you talked about sometimes there's a disconnect uh, People can, vision and mission, and I don't know if I said this previously, but it's often something that can be taken for granted with when it's in place. But if it's not in place, you feel or, or employees can feel that disconnection between uh, where the organization, what the organization does and where their job fits in. And that vision often, you know, gives everyone a common direction. And then it's a good launching pad, you know, just for even those team meetings weekly to say, this is where we're going. This is, you know, everybody's part in it. Um, and, you know, the check-ins, it gives focus and direction to a lot of the work that goes on. Yeah, and I think that's a piece that people forget to, to kind of do on a regular basis. Um, and, and one of the values that I see in, in going through a strategic planning process, I mean, sometimes you know, what will come out the other end won't necessarily be super different than what folks thought going in into it, but it's like a rechecking and a, a confirmation that folks are on the same page. 
Um, I often get a lot of feedback of, wow, that's really helpful to know that other people are feeling the same way I am or seeing it the same way I am, that validation. Um, so, you know, I'll often say if, if you come up with a whole bunch of goals in your plan that, that are brand new, I actually will kind of be curious about that of like, why is there such a departure from what was before? Um, and oftentimes it's much more of a through line and, and it's about confirming or reconfirming or kind of reintegrating that. Yeah, 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 absolutely. We'll be back after this quick break. Mission Impact is sponsored by Grace Social Sector Consulting. Grace Social Sector Consulting helps nonprofits and associations become more strategic and innovative for greater mission impact. Download free resources on strategic planning, program portfolio review, design thinking, and more at gracesocialsector.com slash resources. We're back on Mission Impact. So at the end of each podcast episode, I uh, play a game where I ask you one random um, icebreaker question. So I'm curious, um, what's your favorite family tradition? Oh, goodness. <laughs> that is random. Wow. Um, I love that question. Let's see. My favorite family tradition. I would have to say there are several, but if I have to pick one, it would be going to Hershey Park <laughs> in oh, Pennsylvania. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And how did like, that tradition originate? And, and uh, say more. You know what? I That's a good question, too. Um, I think we just randomly... And that's why I say, you know, yeah, I'm going to stay with the randomness because I think we, we're random at times and we like to just experiment, try new things, go new places. And I think we just looked it up and we saw that they had uh, child-friendly rides and attractions. And we said, okay, let's go. So <laughs> and how you love often, chocolate. And you love chocolate. Well, I'm, I'm always <laughs> in agreement with that one for sure. So it's not something you do on a regular basis or? When we can, at least once a year. Excellent. Yeah. I'm not a roller coaster person, so I stay away from most amusement parks, but I was lucky that uh, my daughter loved them and my younger sister also loved them. So it was the big treat that uh, my younger sister, auntie, you know, would, would take my daughter to, to the amusement park and they got, they had a great time and left me, left me behind to be, you know, stay out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, um, I discovered, and this is funny now, but I discovered that I had vertigo on one of the rides at Hershey Park. So, <laughs> you know, my <laughs> wife is the roller coaster accompanist now. Oh, there you now. go. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I definitely, vertigo, vertigo is a real thing. So what are it you is. excited about? What's, what's coming up next for you? What's emerging in your work? You talked about a manuscript. Yeah, I'm totally excited about that. So I'm working with beta readers right now um, to figure out what's missing, you know, what's resonating with them. Uh, and, and they're mostly scholars in visioning and, you know, organization change, so forth and so on. And so I'm hoping to have that uh, some type of yes by the end of the year, Excellent. some type of green light. All right. Well, we'll look forward to it and, and let us know so we can let folks know um, when it moves to that next step. That'll be exciting. Thanks, Carol. Will do. All right. Well, thank you so much. It was great having you on. Thank you for having me. I was struck by Thomas's example of the CEO 
who has each of her staff be CEO for their monthly meeting, and that one of their jobs is to, to articulate to the team what the organizational vision is. This is a great way to check in and find out whether folks are in alignment and really understand what you are hoping and trying to do. I also appreciated Thomas's description of the good enough vision. So many organizations get caught up in trying to get it perfect. Whether it's their vision statement, their mission statement, their strategic plan, having an attitude of we need to get it to good enough and then get moving can really help keep the momentum going. And as well as the importance of visions being a shared vision. If you're a founder and you're the only person who really gets your vision, it will be a lot harder to realize it. You'll be more effective if you create a vision with the people you're trying to work with, whether it's whether everyone is volunteer or you have a staff. It needs to be a vision of the group, not just the founder. Thank you for listening to this episode. I really appreciate the time you spend with me and my guests. You can find out how to contact Thomas, his full bio, the full transcript of our conversation, as well as any links and resources mentioned during the show at the show notes at missionimpactpodcast.com slash show notes. I want to thank Isabel Strauss-Riggs for her support in editing and production, as well as April Coaster of 100 Ninjas for her production support. And we'd love to hear from you. Take a minute to give us some feedback or ask a question or pose a comment at missionimpactpodcast.com slash feedback. And I invite you to keep making an impact.